But I find that it's really most interesting, most rewarding when you get into something like the World Championship or the Commonwealth Championship, when there's so many good anglers out there and there's so much you can learn with them. And, you know, if you're in a competition, you'll be paired in a boat with somebody else. You will learn something from them. Maybe they'll do better than you, but so what? You will be a better angler at the end of the day. Um, and it's really, it's true. I, I agree completely with you. If, if you try and find somebody better to fish with and learn from, that's when you win. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. Welcome to this edition of Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today we've got on the program Evo Balanov of Smart Angling. Evo, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Mark. Yeah, well, I, I got to tell you, I've been... Uh, Checking out your website online and kind of looking at uh, all things uh, smart angling. Tell us a little bit about how your uh, your partnership with uh, Cyprian got started. Both of us have been involved in competitive fishing for some time. You know, we're quite curious uh, about the techniques that are used in sort of the competition world. Um, and with time, as we got more serious about it, we also came to realize that there's a bit of a vacuum on the Canadian market in terms of the proper equipment for that. Mm-hmm. And I had been the pro staff for a company that makes uh, minting rods for quite a while. Um, they're called Maxia rods now. Back in the day, they were actually called Modern Flies. and They were based in Italy, and then they changed ownership, and they moved to Spain. But they were actually the first sort of line of equipment that I was associated with for, for quite a while. And um, eventually, we ended up selling them, actually Cyprian started selling them, and at some point he asked, hey, how about the other brands? And I knew the Pontiac um, uh, the owner of Hanak himself, one of the two brothers, and I got in touch with him. And we also have a good friend, um, David Arkai, who's a four times world champion now, who has recently started his company in Spain. So we sort of everything came together. I don't know, I don't know, it was quite spontaneous, but it's been a good ride. We, we've, um, we've come to realize that, you know, our assumption that there is really much on the Canadian market um, and there's a vacuum to be filled, it's, it's true. Um, people are responding well to what we're, uh, what we're bringing, especially in a competitive world, but not only. Because the equipment that's made for competitive fly fishing, you know, it's, it's something that's made for such demanding conditions. Um, it's good for anything. The other thing is not necessarily true. You know, but when it comes to good competitive equipment, it can be used for all sorts of, you know, other situations. Like Connex Barber's hooks, for example, people are getting very... Uh, keen about using barbers hooks regardless of whether they're fishing in competition where it's mandatory or just uh, leisurely fishing. People care about catching disease. People care about not going to the hospital when they hook themselves with a barb as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so, one thing about those. I, I do use uh, Hannock hooks, and I'll tell you what, 
I don't think I've found a better hook to tie flies on. Like you say, they're barbless. You get deep penetration, and they're ver- they're very strong hooks, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They come in a variety of uh, of models. Um, you know, some are stronger than others. They're made for different situations. The um, the nymphin hooks are generally the jig hooks are generally quite strong, um, as they have to. They're the ones that get bounced on the bottom all the time, so they have to stay sharp and strong. Um, but then, when you're dealing with dry fly hooks, sometimes you actually want something that's fine and thin that holds on to the fish right away. So there's there's quite a bit of variety between the different models. Mm-hmm. Um, for you know, for people to choose depending on what situation you're in, we find that people in the Canadian market mostly know one or two models, especially the jig models for nymphing. Um, but there's a lot more out there. Um, there's a variety of good hooks for lake fishing. Um, there's several really nice models for dry flies. You know, the standard dry fly hooks, the clink hammer hooks for the traditionalists. To the extent to which checking things traditional, we have, of course, the traditional, you know, sort of uh, curved checking hooks and people like those as well. It's kind of, it's exciting for me to get a chance to chat with you, Evo, because I think somebody that has been involved in competitive fly fishing has a good handle on equipment. Like for the average person that's out there and wants to learn, there's probably so much you could dial us in on. How did you get into the competitive aspect of the sport? I'm just trying to remember. I started competing about 15 years ago, and it sort of came naturally. I was interested in uh, European nymphing techniques before that, and there was almost nobody around, at least not in my part of Canada, that was practicing that. So, you know, I kind of sort of tried to figure things on my own, collected bits and pieces of information, built my first rod because nobody was selling nymphing rods back then. And I was doing that for some time. At some point, somebody announced that there was a fishing tournament to be held up at Mont Tremblant by the local club. And I said, well, why not sign in? And I signed in with a friend of mine. And we were quite successful simply because nobody back there, European nymphing, I think we caught something like over in between the two of us, 75 or 80% of the fish mm. of the day. Um, <laughs> but that's not really... Um, it, I, I realized when, when I started doing that that it's it's really, you learn so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it just being, sometimes you learn it from the other anglers because, you know, as you get more involved in it, you will inevitably end up fishing with people that are much better than you, and that's when it's really interesting. Right. Um, but also just by being put in a situation that challenges you in a way that a normal, you know, sort of leisurely fishing condition wouldn't. Um, you get to learn so much. You know, to me, it's not about winning. It's not so much about the medals. I mean, everyone's happy when these things happen, but the most important thing is that you just get to learn so much and to progress so much. I find that in a season of competitive uh, fishing, you can learn as much as you would in three, four years of normal fishing, and, and you will also learn things um, you know, especially if you start competing internationally and start meeting some of the really good people, you will learn things that nobody writes about. Mm. Uh, you know, there's barely any information about. Um, you know, that's it's it, there's there's so many things in that world where people are constantly pushing the limit that are just not you wouldn't have access to if you weren't doing it. And it really, I mean, it's it's. It's challenging, but it's also very interesting. It's very rewarding. You get to meet different people, too. It's pretty social. 
Um, so I like it for those reasons, and that's sort of what keeps me going. I think it's it's very true too that no matter what sport, whatever whatever pastime you're doing, say take golf or whatever, if you're playing with people that are maybe better than yourself, that's how you learn, isn't it? And then I I would imagine fishing is not much different. Absolutely, and um, you, you know it's funny. There's sometimes there are people who are afraid to get in a competition because the others would be better than them, and they wouldn't you know they wouldn't rank as well as they were hoping to. But I find that it's really most interesting, most rewarding when you get into something like the World Championship or the Commonwealth Championship when there's so many good anglers out there and there's so much you can learn with them. And, you know, if you're in a competition, you'll be paired in a boat with somebody else. You will learn something from them. Maybe they'll do better than you, but so what? You will be a better angler at the end of the day. And it's really, it's true. I agree completely with you. If, if you try and find somebody better to fish with and learn from, that's when you're in progress. We're chatting today with Evo Balanov of Smart Angling Canada, competitive fly fisher, and, uh, of course, they've got their online uh, website um, that you can, uh, I advise you to take a peek at that. They've got some top-shelf rods, a lot of nymphing rods that maybe aren't easy to find, hey, some of those long 10, 10-and-a-half-foot rods. Yeah, well, they're, I have to say that, you know, if we were having this conversation, um, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe even five or six years ago, it'd be very hard to find anything on the market that was made for European nymphing techniques, at least on the North American market. Um, today, just about any company has some kind of a nymphing rod or tries to have some kind of a nymphing rod. It doesn't, unfortunately, mean that all of them are good. Um, you know, you don't learn things overnight. What what we've tried to do is we've tried to bring to the Canadian markets the nymphing rods by you know three European companies, mm-hmm. and all of them have sort of deep roots in competitive fishing. All of them are connected or run by people who are among the very best in the sport. Um, so the equipment that they make is really. Um, you know, be the best you can get for these techniques. That that was our goal when we uh, when we started. Um, but it's not only nymphing rods that we carry. We we do carry rods for a dry fly. Um, we've been doing some work lately to start introducing people to a Spanish dry fly style, which is quite unique and barely known by anyone. Kind of actually barely known by not too many people around the world out of Spain. But you know, once you get exposed to it, it just Turns your world upside down in terms of what dry fly fishing is and, and how <laughs> how proactive it can be and how effective it can be. Uh, it's just one of those things that you learn by getting exposed to these different people from around the world. And then we have lake rods as well. We do a lot of lake fishing ourselves. Right. Um, so it's a little bit of everything that, again, all sort of come tailored from the techniques that we use in the competitive fishing world, but those are starting to penetrate the that's what I try um, to do with with this podcast Evo is dig a little deeper because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of surface information but I, I love to get when we get the chance to chat with somebody that knows the insight into the sport and kind of uh, the direction that it's going because let's face it things are changing so quickly and it's uh, uh, Europe is kind of where everybody seems to draw all this info from mm-hmm 
Would you agree with that, or do you think that uh, there's there's more cutting edge stuff going on in the new world now? Well, I, I don't really know. I, I, as far as uh, in my own experience, the not necessarily hundred percent of the situations, but more often than not, the cutting edge is in the competitive world. It's simply because in competition, people are pushed to uh, to innovate and come up with new stuff. Um, and also competition is the best way to know what works and what doesn't. Um, I'll, I'll try to give you an example. Let's say you went to a lake on your own or with your buddy and you, know, you didn't necessarily have a very productive day. At the end of the day, you start thinking about the moon phase, you know, the old things that went wrong and why the fish weren't biting. You know, the last thing that comes to your mind is, what, what was I doing wrong? <laughs> you know. Mm. Uh, but then you are in a, com- in a competition. There's 10 boats that go out of there. One of them comes back, or one or two come back, and those are really successful, and then the rest aren't. And then you think, oh, maybe those guys got lucky and they, they were on the fish. Um, but then most competitions have more than one session. So you go out in the second session on the same leg on a different leg, and you find out that at the end of the day, the same people <laughs> come back with the best score. Mm-hmm. So you kind of start realizing, wait a minute, it's, they're doing something better. You know, it's not that the fish are not active. Um, it's probably just I'm doing something wrong, and there are many things that I don't know. And that really pushes you forward. Evo, through through your experience, what what is that difference? Is it sometimes just as simple as the size of the fly, the color of the fly? The, I mean, is it any one thing, or is can you pinpoint something? Yeah, it's a combination of things. Um, for example, one of the things you get to realize, I think because of, um, how should I say this, like fishing, Competitive fishing can give you the best statistical reference of what works. You know, when you have people that come out, like 10 boats come out and fish a lake over and over again, and you do it in different competitions and so on, you start to filter out what is it that really matters. One of the, the, the most important things you realize is that in, in fly fishing, we're really obsessed with flies and patterns. Um, and they're not always the most important thing. Um, they are important, but they're just part of an equation of many variables that you have to get together for things to work out. It's just way too often that we start changing flies thinking we got to find the right fly. And sometimes that's not the right fly. Very often it's actually the right presentation. Um, let's say you're on the river and the fish are feeding right on the bottom. You're changing, you know, dry flies or emergers, just trying to figure out the right fly. But there's no right fly. The fish are not going to come up if they're down there. Mm-hmm. You just got to put something down there in front of their mouth. Um, and when you do that, you get the right you know, weight of the fly and the right drift. Most of the time it works regardless of the, the pattern itself. Or the pattern it wouldn't be that much important. On lakes, um, I find that um, the most important thing is really finding out where on the lake the fish are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're casting somewhere, there's not that many fish you want to be catching them. Then you have to find the depth that they are at. You know, you have to get down there. Then you have to be, to find the right retrieve. You know, so the, you know, how are you stripping the flies or how you, or not stripping them if you want a static presentation, of course. Right. And only after that, like in, in this sequence of importance comes the fly. Um, so it's sort of location, depth, retrieve, fly. And very often, the diameter of the leader that you're fishing with 
maybe more important than your flies because it can dictate. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I've, I've lived that so many times. Uh, like, I'll give you an example. I'm just going to give you a scenario. Say you're chironomid fishing on a still water, and for whatever reason, a slightly different color pattern is working. But the reality of it is, is you can change 15, 20 things before you even think about changing the fly pattern, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, more often than not, it's not the fly. It's something else that you got to change. Yeah, that's... You know, can make a, can make a big difference. But we're, we're, we kind of, we, we enter our fly fishing experience. The first thing we all think about is flies, right? In the very beginning, when we don't know the sport, we're quite curious about the flies because they look nice, they come in different colors, and there's such a huge variety of, of them. And, and it becomes an obsession for many people. And I think with time, it starts to distract us a little bit from other things that matter and being successful in fishing. Yeah. Not that the flies are not important, but they are, but they're just one of a number of other important things that you have to put together. If we put half the attention we did into our tippet material or our fluoro or whatever other than the fly you think that would be uh, one key to more success i definitely so um you know for example on, on rivers i um you know i've been knitting for about 15 years now european knitting techniques and it, it seems to be that there is to me there's no limit to how low you can go in the diameter of your tippet i, I kind of keep pushing that and i still haven't gone I think I can even get thinner now. Uh, you know, I used to fish with five weight rods. Now I'm back down to fishing two weight rods because they can handle light tippets. Um, you know, we're fishing really big flies in the beginning, but then I can realize that when I sort of bring the diameter of my tippet down, I can still get down to the bottom smaller flies because they're still sinking and, you know, Mm. Uh, I've come to realize that the presentation is very natural. It's not so much that the fish are, um, you know, would see a thicker tippet, not in the river that much, I think, but it's just that the, when you use a, a lighter tippet, your flies are going to sink better, they're going to drift more natural, and also they'll be, be more sensitive. Mm-hmm. Your rig is going to be more sensitive for strikes. And, you know, these things you know, put together can make a huge difference in your fishing, a lot more than, you know, figuring out a more successful, you know, quote-unquote pattern. I, I did notice that on your on your website, uh, Smart Angling, uh, the rods that you have, those European nipping rods, the longer ones, are. I was shocked, actually, at how light a weight, um, two weight, three weight, right? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, as I said, when I started nipping in, in the very beginning, a long time ago, I started with a five weight. Um, there was nothing else back then on the market. I built my own anyway because there were no 10 foot rods to begin with. Um, and I, come, I came to realize that I'm getting really tired because it's, you know, it's a type of fishery where you're constantly recasting and following your flies as they drift or sometimes leaving them slightly. Um, you know, if, you, if you're not using a light rod, a properly balanced too with the right reel, um, you're going to get tired very quickly and you won't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on top of that, when you downgrade the rod, 
you uh, you get you're able to use very light tippets. Like seven X has become more or less a standard tippet of mine, and I do go down to eight and eight and a half sometimes. And I know uh, in extreme conditions, some of the European anglers fish even thinner than that. And you know, to be able to do that, you need the right equipment. You just got to go down, and you got to find get a rod that is designed for that. Because it's not just the weight; it's also the um, the action of the minted rod. Right. Um, that you got to think about, and, and and they can be different depending on the styles. I think people don't realize that European missing is not just one style. There is the way the Czechs do that, the way the French do that, the way the Spanish do that, and there's quite a bit of variation in between them. They're all suitable for different situations, and you know, better for some conditions, not so good for others. So you sort of got to find out your own. Think about your own conditions, your own style, if you wish, in terms of what you like, and mm-hmm. you eventually settle on the type of equipment that suits you. Um, we have quite a bit of a variety of minting rods that we bring in. Um, we've tried to bring in um, a good variation in terms of price point. Uh, we know some people are beginners. They're not sure if they're going to stick to this. They want to give it a try without breaking the bag. So here we have a hammock minting rod that sells for a little bit over $200, I think which I don't know if there's anything else on the market that's better than that. Then we have some mid-range rods. Um, we have a couple of hammock rods, which actually have a system of extensions that allow you to fish them in four different lengths, different situations. You're fishing small streams, mid-sized, bigger rivers. You can have one, one rod that allows you to cover all of that. You can use those. They're actually pretty good rods for the money. Um, and then you start getting, if you start getting really specialized, then you can start looking into the, you know, the Maxia and the Archive models that we carry, which are sort of highly specialized tools for certain styles. They do cost a lot of money, but they work every, every time. Once you, uh, you know, you get into, if you get interested in, it, in that level and you really want to get to that point, um, you will need one of those rods. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of those, not necessarily need, but you know, one of those will help you. The thing is, I mean, if you can fish, you can fish with a broomstick, of course, but good equipment will help you. Yeah, well put. Well, when you're putting a lot of time in and uh, working rivers with a, an infrared, I mean, equipment's so important. As you said, at the end of the day, you'll be tired out if you don't have the right equipment. Being that you've been around this world of competitive fly fishing, Commonwealth Championships, World Fly Fishing Championships, there must have been a lot of different people that you've learned from. And I'm curious who you're, who's the biggest influence that you've uh, had in your fly fishing? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned uh, two names uh, for lakes. Um, Years ago, I mean, probably 10 years ago, um, somebody broke to Canada for some classes, a, um, a guy from the UK named John Horsey. And John is one of the very, very best lake fishermen in the world, hands down. Um, and, you know, having the opportunity, I took one of those classes. It was sort of a two-day thing going over different techniques in the so-called lock style, which is fishing from a drifting boat. That's mm-hmm. what we do in uh, competitions. A lot of what I build on, the fundamentals are, are still from those two days. You know, so many years after that, of course, you know, I've learned different things. I've made mistakes or relearned things, looked at different, um, you know, styles and so on. But when I look back, the, the fundamentals of what I learned are still what, um, you know, I learned from John Horsey back then. So it's, it's certainly left a mark on my fishing. Um, in terms of river fishing, it's two guys. Um, some time ago, I, I broke to, to Canada for some classes, a guy from the Czech Republic, 
they probably called Martin Draws. And Martin is several times world champion, both individual and with a Czech team, and, and has a number of our titles. Quite an amazing guy. Um, very humble, very down to earth, an incredible angler. And, and I learned a lot from him about fishing rivers, especially um, moving the Czech style, sort of a short line. Nothing. Um, and after that, I had a chance to fish with another of the Czech guys, um, Igor Slavik, who is the, this year was the manager of the Czech team at the national championship, but also an amazing angler. I learned a lot from him as well. I happened to be right after I fished with Mark, and there was a, a lot of stuff, a lot of new stuff in a matter of a few weeks that I ended up assimilating for years after that. And more recently, in the last couple of years, I've had the chance to fish several times with David Akai from from Spain. Mm. And he's barely, I think he's 27 or 20 years old, David, and he's already been world champion, you know, four times, once individually and then three times with the Spanish team. And he has opened my eyes for a bunch of other things when it comes to river fishing. Um, one is the Spanish dry fly style, which is quite amazing, and it's nothing like it. It very sort of turns your world around and like go upside down when you think about what we know about dry fly fishing. People, can um, we dig a little deeper know. on that? I I don't even know what it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, I'll try, you know, I'll try and explain it um, as much as I can. Like, it really has to be seen. Um, but the Spanish fish was an extremely long leader, and they have a particular way that they cast it that it kind of always lands in a V or in a curve. Mm-hmm. So you get a, let's say it's what we've been taught traditionally to do a dry fly, you know, we would get, let's say in the spot, you could get a one foot or two, two foot long dragless drift. Uh, well, a Spanish dry fly in the same spot, you're probably going to get 10 feet or more. Right. Um, so you can get these super long dragless um, drift, and the fish respond to that really well. And you also start understanding when you see that being done and you try it yourself that we think when we fish dry flies in the traditional way that there is no there is no drag um, on our fly because we don't see it. But there is. It's sort of like micro drag. Hmm. All right, we don't see it ourselves, but the fish see it. And once you start fishing the Spanish way, you realize the difference because you start seeing how confidently the fish come up and engulf flies. And you find them deep in their throat, you know, flies that otherwise would be at the edge of their lips somewhere with the, the doing the exact same thing with the same fly, same spot, fishing the traditional way. Right. Um, when you're yeah. fishing those long, long leaders, I mean, how how much contact are you really having with the fish, or is it just a reactionary take? Uh, you know, when you're fishing a dry fly, well, you, you really have, it, it's sort of, you see the fish come up, come and take, and, and you have to, to do a very sort of pronounced strike to be able to connect with it. But you learn how to do it. And the thing is that the takes are very confident. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you give the fish some time to take and go down with your fly, then you just connect with it. I'm still learning about it. I'm pretty new at it. Um, you know, it's something that you don't learn in a matter of, I mean, every year, for a year. Are these leaders tapered or are they um, just straight? Well, they're tapered and there's a specific formula that the Spanish have developed based on you know, years and years of experience. They've been doing that for a long time. Mm. Um, we do sell the ones um, that are 
you know, made according to this formula and actually tied by Bovex himself. Okay. Um, Those are available through your site? Yeah. Those are available on our website, yeah. I think there's something like 15 bucks for the dry fly leader, and one of them will take you through a season, and one or two can easily take you through a season. Maybe maybe uh, now would be a good time, Evo, to run down some of your, your handles. So um, if someone's looking to find your website, what are they typing? Smarthangling.com. Okay. As simple as that. And what about Instagram? Um, the hashtag will be um, Smart Angling Canada. It will be the same thing on Facebook as well. We added a Canada to it because if there happens to be a, um, a smart angling company in the UK that deals with carp fishing, but I don't think that's what our clients are after. No, no, fair enough. Um, can I ask you this? Do you spend a lot of time at the uh, at the Vice? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, maybe not as much as other people. You know, from flight time... I like fly time, but probably not as much as most of my fishing buddies. Um, I, 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 I consider myself to be more of a sort of fly tire by demand. You know, I like tying the fly that I fish with. Right. You know, but I'm, I'm not that crazy about it. And, you know, sometimes I even get a little bit frustrated with it because I'm, you know, in, in competitive fishing, in general, like, I, I like having a lot of the same pattern, and then when I have to keep trying the same thing over and over again, it's, it's, it's not, you know, sometimes I get a little bit bored of it, but yeah. I have to do it because I need it for fishing. And, and every now and then, if I'm inspired, you know, I'll sit down and try and come up with something new or something interesting and experiment with something, and then it's, then it's a lot of fun. In general, I like fishing more than, than I like fly tying. Yeah, fair enough. I think there's a lot of people in that boat. I just find, for me, it really stretches um, the season, right? You know, you get into the cold yeah. the cold weather, and it's uh, time, to, time to get Absolutely. going. Absolutely, and, and I totally respect people that are very much into fly tying. We all, we all fish or tie, I think, first and foremost, for, for fun and, you know, recreation, so... You know, whatever makes you happy. Like I have friends who are crazy about fly tying, and then I don't see them on the river that often. But you know, if if that's what they like, then yeah. you know, why not? If you had, and I don't want you to, you know, open your fly box on the air, as to say, but if you were to pick a couple of go-to patterns for you on uh, maybe maybe one on moving water and one on still water, uh, what's your kind of go-tos? Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, I don't I don't hide my flies. By the way, my box is always open to the friends I fish with, um, to the extent to which they can learn something from me. Of course, um, there there is one one nymph that I use in rivers, which is a variation of the hair's ear um, that I tied. Um, it's a little bit skinnier and it has a green rib as opposed to the standard uh, wire that is being used for it. And I tie that fly in a variety of sizes, in a variety of bead colors, and I have almost half of my fly boxes full of it. So I would use it when I nymph. I nymph it uh, two flies usually, and I would use most more often than not, I would use one of those hairs ears of the anchor fly, which is the one on the bottom. Um, you know, and as I go through different parts of the river, I need to adjust the weight of my rig. I would just change that sometimes with heavier, sometimes with lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the conditions change, and I want to try different colors of beads. I do the same thing, uh, but it's essentially the same pattern. Because um, I, I do find, uh, in my personal opinion, is that very often the color of the bead 
um, and then of course the size and the weight of your fly is a lot more important than the pattern itself. Hmm. Makes um, sense. The, the, the bee is really in the eyes of the fish, right? The most visible part of your of your nymph. If you're fishing a beaded nymph, you know it's that flashy thing out there. So if it's silver or copper or gold or pink. Uh, you know, it can make a big difference. Do you use a lot of tungsten in your patterns? Um, yeah, on the rivers and the nymphs, they're all pretty much most of them are uh, would be tungsten um, in a variety of uh, bead sizes. You know, from two, two usually most of them would be in the range of two and a half milliliters to four. Um, but I rarely use four lately. I find. Three and a half, three are probably the most common ones. And then when things get difficult, skinny water will be, you know, can go around to two and a half. So this nymph pattern you're talking about, is this something you use on, on still waters as well or, or strictly on the rivers? No, I don't, I don't really use it on still waters. Um, that's sort of a, a river pattern for, for nymphing. Um, on still, water, still waters, I, I don't know, I'm kind of in a, in a period when things are changing and trying new things, but there's a few flies that I always trust. Um, for example, a um, what we would call a vampire booby, uh, which is basically yeah. a black booby which shows through his eyes um, in a variety of sizes. Um, for me, it's been probably one of the most reliable flies to um to catch fish on. How do you fish that, it, Evil? Like, do you fish that on a on a heavy on a fast sink or? Oh, oh wow! You just—it's funny. I just gave a talk a few weeks ago to a local club on fishing boobies, and I started by saying that they're the most versatile flies. Um, you can do so many different things with them. So, I mean, you can—you um, can. One of the things I like doing a lot is fishing um, two boobies ten feet apart. Um, so I'll take off the middle fly. It'll be just two of them, and with that you can fish a variety of sinking lines. You know, from the ones on the bottom, like from DI seven, all the way up to a slow glass, depending on the situation um, in terms of what you want to do. Um, you know, depending on where the fish are, how fast you want to strip, and so on. With those two flies, you know, you can cover all of that. And you can fish them slow on the drop, you can strip them fast, you can figure out eight them, you know, any of those things can work. And boobies are an amazing fly. You can you can do all sorts of things with them and you can also use them to, to make your flies, your other flies do things, you know, like slow down how fast there's the whole rig is sinking and yeah, I wish I could summarize it. <laughs> it's an amazing <laughs> pattern. It really is. My question to yeah. you is, what do you think the fish are taking that as? <laughs> I, I have no idea, honestly. Yeah. I have no idea, but I think, you know, when I started fly fishing and started reading, I, I, I had some some books by, I think, like some British guys, and they were trying to ex- sort of explain the types of flies, and they were dividing them into a attractor, like imitators and attractors. Uh, and instead of that, there are flies that imitate something that the fish is eating, and that's why the fish are taking them. But there are flies that are purely attractors, um, you know, that are the fish are taking them because they move in a certain way or because they have they provoke them by a certain color. And, and they're not necessarily an imitation of something that the fish would normally eat, but for one or another reason, they provoke the fish. Mm-hmm. I think the booty somewhere in between. If you look at it, you know, what is out there that looks like that that the fish are eating? I, I don't think there is something like that. 
exactly like that, you know, mm-hmm. but still, you know, if you take the part of the fly that is tied with uh, marabou and so on, and, you know, it reasonably enough resembles a, you know, a little, like a prefish or a leech or something like that, right. a worm maybe, but the if the booby eyes would give it a particular action, you know, they make it uh, float if you're fishing it on a deep sinking line, so every time you move it, it goes up and down. Um, and it's that action that provokes the fish. And, and they're also soft, which means the fish are very comfortably chewing on them. So they take that fly with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot less carefully than other flies. That's why you find it in their throats, deep in the throat sometimes. Something that makes me laugh thinking about, we're talking about booby patterns, which are basically, if you don't know, it's uh, basically big foam uh, eyes, uh, marabou tail usually, and, and perhaps a marabou body. I, I remember picking up a fly fishing book in England probably 30 years ago, and it had something very similar. And I'm kicking myself because I think, honest to God, I've probably only been fishing them here five or six years, but they've been around a long time, haven't they? Yeah, they've been around for a very long time, and it, it, they did originate in the UK from what I know. Um, initially, they were fished on a sinking line with just a single fly with a very short leader, three or four feet, mm-hmm. right on the bottom. Um, and they proved to be so deadly that they were banned completely from some fisheries, um, and they still are in some places, or in other places, you're not allowed to fish them static. Um, for example, this year, the Commonwealth Championships in, in Northern Ireland we were allowed to fish um, boobies, but we were told, um, especially on one bank fishery that we had, that we have to be moving them, even if we're moving them very slowly, but we're not allowed to fish them static um, because the fish end up taking them so confidently and so deeply that, um, you know, it sort of it affects the fish survival rate. So, yeah, but they've been, they've been around forever. There's something about that color combination, though, when you talk about the chartreuse and the black. like Chartreuse uh, I, and black, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah, crazy. And that's what I love about tying, though, too, right? If you've got that color combination in your head, you can do that with anything. You could do it with a mayfly nymph. You could do it with a dragon. It'll probably work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and it sort of comes to tell you that there are... Sometimes it's not about the imitation, but it's just the certain things that trigger the fish. And you can put them on different patterns and they keep working, you know, like a certain color or a color combination. This week you've been listening to part one of a two-part interview with Evo Balanov. Evo's the co-owner and marketing director of SmartAngling.com. A uh, glimpse into the world of competitive fly fishing and all the gear that these guys are using. Uh, check out their website, that's smartangling.com. And we'll have more with Evo uh, next time around on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or a topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.